So our study tonight is from First John chapter 1, and it's on my screen. Nancy, can you help us read from verse 1 to verse 4? That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father, uh, and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the father and with his son jesus christ and these things we write to you that your joy may be full amen amen okay thank you nancy there's quite a bit to unpack here and some things for us to grapple with to try to understand but let's see if we can go over it very quickly so John begins by pointing us to the beginning, right? We said that this is um, an expression of his ministry. He was found mending his net when Jesus called him, illustrative of the fact that he was, he's the one who calls us back to the vital things, to the things that make for our strength, to the things that make for our Christianity. And he was writing as an old man at this point, at the point where most of the apostles had been martyred for the gospel, where he was the only one left of the originals, if you like. And by originals, I mean those who saw Jesus, interacted with him, stayed with him, you know, they expressed the physical manifestation of Christ. And you can see that the way he begins the letter is with an emphasis to that corporal element of Christ. Because just like in John's day and in our day, you're going to meet a lot of people who find it convenient to deny the corporal aspect of Christianity. Because the corporal aspect of Christianity, you can argue, is perhaps the most challenging aspect of it. Because it's very possible for you to just be having encounters with God, right? It's possible for you to be on a mountain of transfiguration. And then you're seeing Moses and Elijah. Right, spirit, spirit civilizations, <laughs> let's call it like this. It's very possible for you to have all of that. But if you remember that mountain of transfiguration experience, <laughs> the, the, the sad part of that experience is that they came down from the mountain because Peter said, Lord, it is good for us to remain here. But Jesus said that you are, you are man and as man you were created, or he didn't say it, but I'm paraphrasing his answer to, to, to Peter. As man, you were created to function on earth. And it was symbolic that as soon as they got down from the mountain, they met a demon-possessed man who was, or rather a man who brought his son who was possessed with an epileptic spirit. So it's a sharp contrast. You know, you are, one moment you are in glory, right? And the next moment you have to deal with the practicalities of, of physicality, the weaknesses that accompany the fact that, that we are contained in a frail form. Yet, despite the fact that the physicality of life is one of the greatest challenges of Christianity, which culminates in death, right? Jesus himself is not willing to do away with it. 
And the Apostle John is not willing to do away with it. His insistence is that a core and a significant part of Christianity is our corporal physical expression. So that, like he's going to argue in this letter, you have every right to doubt your Christianity if your Christianity has no impact whatsoever on the life that you're living in the flesh. No impact whatsoever. Because everything is mixed up together. And you see, this is what keeps us humble. This is part of what keeps us hungry and humble, right? Because if we were to judge our alignment with God based purely on our spiritual experiences, all of us would probably give ourselves 100%, no? Because every time you pray, you feel the anointing. Or you, or maybe not every time, but at least most times, you know? And you are able to enjoy Jesus. You're able to, if you just, if it doesn't matter what you do, if you just repent, he forgives you and you are restored to fellowship, you know, it's possible to judge your life from that point of view and think that everything is okay. But then when it comes to translating the economy of your spirit, the thing that is happening inside your spirit, when it comes to translating it to the physical material life, when it comes to laying your hands on the sick and seeing the sick recover, when it comes to dealing with the practical limitations of a physical life, that's what keeps us realistic. That's what keeps us humble. Now, we said last week that the reason John begins like this is that just like in our day, in that time, there were preachers who were not really preachers, but they were peddling Greek philosophy. And Greek philosophy, like we have seen in previous studies, is that philosophy that, that tries to separate the physical from the supernatural. Um, on the premise that the physical is evil, it is dirty, and everything that you can observe in the physical, and God has nothing to do with it, but that the spiritual, and that's where the word gnosis came from, because it's the Gnostics that, that were the bane of the church at this time, that, that the way to God comes from experiencing a secret knowledge, you know, a knowledge that can only, um, shall I say, be revealed to you. And if you have that knowledge of God, that's all that matters. This physical life does not matter. That's why John begins his letter by insisting that the thing that we are fellowshipping with even though you and I do not have the privilege to experience the corporal nature, by corporal I mean the bodily nature of what we are fellowshipping with, he wants to assure you that it was corporal, it was bodily, right? And that's why you have a lot of repetition here. He said, we heard him, we have seen him with our eyes, we have looked upon him. And our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Now, like I promised last week, I want to ask us the question. If he's describing, you know, physical interaction, right? If he's describing physical interaction here, what's the difference between seeing him with our eyes and looking upon him? Because I think that this is where there, there comes a boundary. Of course, like you're going to see, the boundary between the physical and the supernatural in this verse is, a, is very thin. You know, in describing physical encounters, John starts using spiritual elements such as the word of life. And he's trying to say to us that a supernatural element was domiciled in a physical person. And if you've read John's gospel, you'll see that his purpose in writing that gospel is that you might believe what he's saying. And through believing, you might have this same life that was manifested. 
And his emphasis now in this episode is to show us the riches of that life, right? But who who, who can try? Um, what's the difference there between we have seen with our eyes and we have looked upon? Please help us. What's the difference? Can you say one scene is like being from a distance and looked upon is like living, like having a lived experience or something? Okay, so seeing from a distance and having a lived experience. So what you're trying to say is that it's just like watching a football match from TV and then being in the exp in the stadium. In the stadium, something like that. Well, yeah. You could say that, right? So John is saying that <laughs> we didn't just watch him from the mountaintop. You know, we came we came up close. We saw him, right? You know, I remember when I studied this many years ago, part of what I came to, thank you, Stephanie, for that. Part of what I came to was to realize that the difference between seeing, right, and looking upon is that you're going to have details, right? If somebody passes before you and you see them, if you're like me, you may not even remember how their hair looks like. <laughs> and this is a confession that I'm notoriously bad at remembering how anybody's hair looks like. However, the proof that you looked upon is that you have details. You don't just have snapshots. You don't just have impressions, if you like, but you have details. <laughs> John is basically saying that I can tell you what his eye color was. Now, of course, this is a physical expression of this. Right, there's a spiritual dimension to this as well. John is literally saying, I can tell you what his eye color was, I can tell you his height. He was that physical, he was not a spiritual because this is part of what the Gnostics taught, like we mentioned last week. Right, Christ was not a spiritual Christ, he was a physical Christ. So, that's a physical element. Sammy, your hand is up. Okay, yeah, um, I was thinking, uh, when you said looking and seeing. I remember the place where they were asking Jesus to show them the Father. Mm -hmm. And Jesus said, <laughs> if you have seen me, you have seen me, the Father, how would you say you've been with me all this way I've not seen the Father? Mm -hmm. And I just, um, you know, in addition to what you said, um, one is that they just, you know, like you said, look, but then there's this aspect of contemplating on what you have seen. Yes, that's the spiritual element. That's the... Thank you, Sammy, <laughs> for, for taking us there, right? Meditating, right? That's where you were, get, you were headed, right? Yeah, in a way. Okay, yeah. Thomas said, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Like, don't worry, we, we can close all the arguments if you show us the Father. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long and you have not discerned me? So this knowledge of Jesus is only possible to those who look upon him, who look intently, who meditate upon him, who stay upon him. So that's what John is saying, that I was not just a disciple for, for three and a half years. I, I, I meditated, I looked upon him. I compared everything about his life with the prophecies about him. And that's instructive for us, right? That our desire and our hunger should not just be to see the things, the promises of God, right? To see the things of God. Our promise, our hunger and our desire should be to look upon it intently. There is a place in fellowship 
for staying upon the word of life. You see, this word of life is called the word of life because, because of both its origin and its effect. Right? Remember in Acts chapter 5, the angel appeared to Peter and said, I want you to go, or God wants you to go and speak the words of this life. So that brings out the idea that this is a word that produces life. It's a word that produces life. Huh? And when John uses life in his letters, he's not referring to the ability to breathe, even though the ability to breathe in and out is the foundation. Because he, tell, he tells us in John chapter 1 that by him all things were created. So an aspect of life is natural life, right? But if you are a student of John, you will know that John is more fascinated by that aspect of life that is eternal, that is endless in its quantity and is, is endless in its possibilities. You know, it is eternal, not just in its length, but in its possibilities, and the container, the channel, the entry point for that life is a word. A word. But you see the difference, right, between the person who heard the word and it didn't profit him versus the person who heard the word and it profited him is what we're looking at today. It is fellowship. And one of the things fellowship means is staying on the word, staying upon something until the life in it emerges. He says, we didn't just see him with our eyes. We looked upon him. Friends, that's one of the things God is challenging me about. And I want to challenge you about too. Can you stay on the word until the life in it emerges? Can you stay on it? Just in case you find that, that your peace leaves you very easily. It doesn't take too much in the environment to happen. I can assure you that there's enough that has happened in my environment in the past two weeks to make me lose my peace completely. You know, just in case you find yourself in that situation where, where, where your joy just diminishes. You know, it's as though like Satan just knows the buttons. He presses one, presses two, presses three. And if they all happen at the same time, your joy just goes. Just in case you find yourself easily engulfed by fear. John is saying that the antidote is that which was from the beginning. And that which was from the beginning is the word of life. And the way to profit, now we're already going into profiting things. The way to profit from the word of life is through fellowship. And the primary first meaning of fellowship we're seeing here is staying upon the word. It says we have looked upon it. You know that these four verses, these four verses of First John, if you stay on them, if you stay on them, if you stay, streams of life will flow from them. Streams of life will flow from them. Stephanie, your hand is up. I'm sorry, Joshua. You know that I tend to ask some very silly questions. When okay, you say go ahead. They, are you saying read, listen, med, as in just meditate, like we keep repeating them to yourself? Are you saying pick out the promises that you're trusting God for? You know, I'm just wondering. Okay. And break it down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yes, thank you for that question. It's actually a good one. Um, now, in your Christian life, there are certain things that are variable, right? And there are certain things that are constant. And I can assure you, don't take don't take my estimation too seriously, right? 
But the things about your life that are variable, and by variable, I mean peculiar to you, specific to you, specific to your time, specific to your season, just specific to your makeup, your calling. Those things are like 10%. I've not done any research, so maybe the number is not accurate, but you get the point that those things are necessary, right? For example, it's necessary that you arrive at a point where you know, okay, God wants me to marry this person. That's very specific. It's not written in the Bible who the person is, right? But you see, those things are not many. They are not many. They are like, okay, who should you marry? Um, which city should you live in, right? What ministry should you be part of, you know? And they, 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 they come with seasons and they are what we call the Kairos moments. But 90% of your life will be lived in the Kronos, right? So it means that if you're going to be strong, if you're going to enjoy a rich Christian life, you have to be rooted in the things, right, that are constant. You need to know those things because, friends, can I tell you, your circumstances, my circumstances are not constant. I wish that I could tell you that, oh, in the Christian life, you can be sure that nothing that is not good will not happen. But um, unfortunately, the Bible doesn't teach such, and I cannot guarantee you such. So your circumstances are subject to change. COVID can break out tomorrow, and suddenly you are locked into your house, and you can be crying. But, oh God, I'm an evangelist to the nations. Why did COVID happen? Your circumstances are not one of the things that is constant. But there are certain things that are supposed to be constant. The first of it is the love of God. You need to stay on the love of God. Until you can truly say with David, the Lord is my shepherd. You may not understand how audacious that confession was until you realize that David was claiming the God of an entire nation for himself. And he didn't make that comment as king. He made it as a shepherd boy lost in the wilderness. It was easy for him to decide and agree that, Kai, there was no provision for me. Because when Jesse was asked to bring his sons, David was not in the number. It was easy for him to make that estimation of himself. In that barren place, left to the mercy of the lion and the bear, the guy said, the Lord is my shepherd. You see, you may, re you may not realize that the revelations you need for your personal deliverance, they are not as big as you think. Before I go to you, Sami, another critical constant, eh? another critical constant which God has been teaching me <laughs> and which I would like to pass on to you is that Satan is defeated, right? Now, that doesn't mean that Satan cannot bruise people's heels. It doesn't mean that he cannot show himself, but he has a curse on him. He has a burden on him, and that burden is the burden of defeat. It was prophesied in Genesis chapter 3. That yes, you can bruise his heel, but he will bruise your head. And you see, the head is where the authority is. So that in God's arrangement, it doesn't matter what Satan does. He can kill people even. All of it, all of it will work out for the good of everyone who is aligned with God. It's something that you and I need to sit down with and agree that Satan has lost. It's not... Yes, we are, we, are, we are wrestling, we are fighting, but we are not fighting from we want to know who will win. In fact, we will not be involved in the fight if we didn't know the end. No, we will not even start it. The fact that we even have a say 
is proof that he has lost. And you know, hmm, Satan has many ways of convincing people that he has not really lost. Because you might look at, let's, let's just take a, a, a detached example, right? You might look at Nigeria and then he comes and begins to whisper to you. So after all the prayer and fasting and prophesying and everything, you know, look at your country. And you see, he might, be, he might begin to entertain his thoughts. But you only do that if you are not grounded in the fact that he has lost. Stephanie, does what I'm saying make sense? Right? That there are certain constants in the Christian life that we need to stay on. Yes, thank you, Joshua. Very helpful. Thank you. Okay. You're welcome. Sammy, your hand was up. Do you still have your question? Oh, yeah. Yes, yes, just. It wasn't really a question. Okay. Uh, I just wanted to support what you said, um, just to share with Stephanie. Recently, I discovered, I had a new, will I see epiphany or revelation in terms of reading the Bible? And I found out that most of us who grew up in Christian circles, our major problem is the disconnect between Bible terminology and their contemporary um, applications. Applications, yes. Mm -hmm. So even till today, you know, I've even had that experience when I, I tell, maybe I show some of my friends here, I link them to some of our Nigerian teachers to listen to. You know, most of these people who didn't grow up with the Bible, they are very honest. They'll tell you, these guys are just speaking in jargon. So when she asks this question, it, it hits me again. And I just wanted to share, just like you said, that staying is, is, is um, fellowship is the opposite of worry, which Jesus told us about. So for example, when we have an issue and we have a problem, we get infatuated with the problem. We worry about it. We sit down, we deliberate that problem. We expand on the realities. Maybe they just broke up with one lady, but her brain, she has begun to expand on the realities of the breakup. This is what the breakup now means. This is what my life looks like without this breakup. Look at the time this guy has made me lost. We enlarge it. You know, we just, we just <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's like zooming in into the picture and looking yeah. at the pixels. Yes. So fellowshipping with the promises of God is the opposite of worry. Is sitting down. That's why I used that word earlier contemplating on his promises, zoom into the promise. And I love what Josh said, that there is the variable and then there is the constant. Zoom into it. Just get infatuated with the promise of God. Deliberate on it, ponder on it, contemplate. And I love something Josh said. Um, the, I discovered also that the devil is a very, very patient guy. And he's also very content. He doesn't look for big victories. Is satisfied with very little victory. And one of the very little victory he enjoys is just managing to convince you that this is your problem, meditating on this word of God is not enough to solve it. So even now we are talking about meditating on the word of God, and then maybe you now realize, say, how strength or school fees or bills. So my, or like as Josh has mentioned now, Nigeria, you go on Twitter and they now tell you how the Supreme Court is turning on his own head like standing fan. And then you won't be able to focus. But the most important thing is just to sit down, get infatuated with that promise, contemplate on that promise, soak on it, get, get carried away. In fact, go to the point where you daydream about the promise of God, if that would make sense to you anyways. 
I trust that helps. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's really, really good, Sammy. That's a really good picture. Enlarging the wrong thoughts in your mind. Yeah. Enlarging the wrong thoughts. Corrupted, corrupted thoughts and visions. Wow. Thank you, Sammy. Okay. So I guess um does anyone want to contribute before we move on to verse two? Okay. So here I want you to follow the, the, the progression, right? Because now John is about to switch. You see, I told I said at the beginning that that boundary between what is physical and what is spiritual is very narrow, is very thin. And he has been saying that we have that he experienced Christ, who is the word of life. He experienced him physically. And then in verse two, he switches. Now he tells us that the thing that was from the beginning was the word of life, the very utterance by which God created things and by which God still creates things. And of course, in his gospel, he told us that that word became flesh. It didn't just have a promise of life. It became life itself. Now, in verse 2, it tells us that the life was manifested. The life was manifested. Kai, Kai. The life was manifested. Another way to, to, to say this in simpler language, like Samuel said we should be using now, is the promise was manifested. The thing that I read about, it, 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 it jumped out of the scripture. It didn't just remain in my spirit. It didn't just remain locked up in the spirit. It was manifested. It became a tangible reality. I went from promise to manifestation. I went from expectation to experience. The life was manifested. Friends, if it is true that you have come to Christ, then it is also true that you have his life in you. The question is, how much of the life is being manifested? Right? How much of the wisdom of that life is being manifested? How much of the glory of that life? How much of the power of that life? Have you become satisfied with a mundane expression of life. Have you become satisfied with a mundane expression? The reason why I'm asking this question is that the only answer John has for the problem of manifestation is fellowship. That if I look at two Christians, right? And there is a gap in manifestation possibilities. Fellowship is the only way to bridge that gap. Fellowship is the only way one person went ahead of the other. Fellowship is the only reason why one person regressed. So the life was manifested. And that's my prayer for you and I, that the life, that, that thing, that, that stream of, of joy, of reality, of power that is locked up in us, that it will overflow. That it will overflow. Because it's only when it overflows that the world, the Gentiles, the peoples will begin to confess what John is saying, that we have seen and bear witness. We have seen. Jesus has determined that the way he's going to walk through this earth is through you and I. So that if our witness is insufficient, if the witness of our lives is passing on an uncertain message, then that's going to be the witness of Christ in our, in our families and in our territories. It is, it is the revelation of Christ that is seen in us that will turn people to him. You know, the first altar Abraham built, 
in Genesis chapter 12. He didn't know God's name when he built that altar. He didn't know what to call him. No, we know his name. In fact, we have many names for him. When Abraham built his first altar, he didn't have a name. All he had was a revelation. The Bible says that Abraham built an altar to the God who appeared to him. He said, I don't know your name, but after I encountered you, I know that your beauty, your beauty is worth worship. So that in a sense, it is the God that we reveal that people will raise an altar to. If it is, it is when they see the beauty, the glory, the power of God, that they'll be like, I don't, I don't really know his name. I don't yet have a relationship with him, but if he's anything like what Stephen is manifesting, if he's anything like what Sam is manifesting, then I raise my altar to him. So that our lives will be the proxy by which people can begin their journey in glory. That's what Jesus was. That's what Jesus was. And just in case you think I'm taking it too far, you're going to find in verse 3 that John is inviting us into the same fellowship. And that's why he's giving us this background. That what we're inviting you into is not hearsay. It's not cunningly devised fables. It's not, it's not a utopia. No, it is a reality that a corporal element has walked in. That Christ in human form walked in. And we have also experienced the same. It says, and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Verse 3 says, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. So they were enjoying this economy. Now, the word fellowship is the main focus of our study, right? And it is the Greek word koinonia, which is a rich word in the Greek. And we're going to see what it means as we read the next few verses. But he's saying that we are experiencing this manifestation. And the reason we're experiencing the manifestation of this life is because we are having fellowship with the Father. So it means that the, it means that the life of God that is inside of you, that is inside of me, and, and I know that at this point I'm repeating myself, but it's worth repeating. The life of, the, of God that is inside of us has a manifestation element. And it is possible that you can have that life and never experience the manifestation element. Yes. You see, every life form has an education, right? It educates you. Like, like, like a baby, when a baby is born, the baby begins to feel the pangs of hunger. That's an education. And over time, the baby learns that, okay, this is the kind of food I need to eat to quench this kind of hunger. The baby needs to learn that when I'm pressed, I don't just poop in what I'm wearing. I, I know what this thing is. So I need to dispatch it somewhere. Every life form has an education, right? And eternal life, which you and I have received, also has an education. And John is going to come into that in chapter two. He says the anointing that you have, it, it teaches you, teaches you. It, and, and that's why you, you, you start receiving burdens. At first, you may not know that these are burdens, but as you, as you navigate in that life, you learn, ah, so this is a burden. And then as you navigate, you learn different kinds of burdens. Okay, some need long prayer. To, to like like for me to be able to dispatch them others need a decree god is just inviting me to decree things you know and the burden will lift you begin to, that's it's a hidden life right it's a hidden life so that it's possible that you can see somebody 
you know, manifesting something and you don't know the operating system behind it because it's a hidden life. There's an entire education system that is facilitated to, to bring you into oneness with that life. But you see, the life of God doesn't just have an education. It doesn't just give you burdens, right? It doesn't just give you promptings to speak. It doesn't just give you stirrings, all those educational elements. It also has a manifestation element. And what John wants us to, to yearn for is the manifestation, right? That's what he wants us to yearn for. And he says that the doorway into the manifestation is fellowship with us. And like we're going to see, the basic manifestation of the life of God is holiness and righteousness. We're going to see it. That's the basic manifestation because it's, it's, at, the, it's at the heart of the character and the nature of the life that you've received. That's the basic manifestation. So that if it is true that you are in Christ, you have received the life of Christ and the life of Christ is educating you and you've learned how to receive education. You've learned how to interact with the anointing that teaches. Then it's, it's a good thing for you and I to ask yourself, to ask ourselves, where is the manifestation? Why is sin still dominating in my space? Friends, there's nobody who has honestly asked that question that will not receive express education from the Holy Spirit. You see, the problem with us many times is that we don't realize that the word fellowship, we're going to come to it. Now we're jumping, but let's jump. We don't realize that the word fellowship primarily means partnership. That there is that that God comes to the table and I also come to the table. You know, many times we we often wonder, you know, why did this thing just happen like that? Or why doesn't it happen to me automatically? You know, but we don't realize that God fellowship, like like people in the Navy in America said, is two fellows on the same ship. God comes to the table, and I come to the table. So that if God brings everything God has and I don't do my 1%, there will be no manifestation. And maybe my 1% may just be, hold on, hold fast. Maybe that may be my 1%. And that's how God has decided to tie himself to us. That if he's going to be manifested on earth, he's going to be in partnership with us. And it's necessary if we're going to express God for us to learn the ways of fellowship. He says, we're inviting you to also fellowship with us. And truly, truly, our fellowship is with the Father. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. And that's like we saw last week, the first riches of fellowship. Your joy is full. There is a fullness, there's a satisfaction. There is a settled assurance. You know, joy is like a river. It is, it is infectious. It, it, it's, it contaminates everything that, it's, that it comes in contact with. If, if joy is not streaming from your life, it can practically affect your ability to receive a miracle from, from the Lord. But it is true fellowship that a well of joy is maintained in you. And like the Bible says that it is with joy that we will draw water out of the wells of salvation. Okay, so let's move on then to see what the message is that, that we have, the primary character of the God 
and the Father to whom we have been called to fellowship. Can you read for us, Nancy, from verse 5 to verse 7? Okay. From verse 5 to verse 7 says, This is the message which we have heard from him and declared to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Amen. Amen. Okay, so there are a few things I want us to dissect here. So I'd like you to follow us closely and to also give, give your feedback. The first thing I want to show us here is that we have fellowship with one another, right? Who, who is he referring to here when he says we have fellowship with one another? Based on the context of the scripture. So that we don't miss the train of thought. Well, Nancy wrote believers, but you see, believers are not yet in this context, right? He's dealing with the father, right? He said our fellowship, truly, our fellowship, remember it's three, right? Truly, our fellowship is with the father and with his son. And then in verse six, he says, if we say that we have fellowship with him, so when he says fellowship with one another, I know that it sounds strange to you because of the English construction, but in the original, it's very clear that he's referring in context, he's referring to the father. But it sounds strange because we don't have the idea that fellowship is partnership. But this phrase brings it out so beautifully. Stephanie, your hand is up. No, I'm so sorry. You already said it. It sounds strange. I've never seen it in that way at all. I've always seen it as fellowship with one another as in brethren. It's it's partnership. It's partnership. But but let's start from the from verse five, right? There are some things we need to dissect. The first is that God is light. It says this is the basic thing we learned from our fellowship with, with the Father, from our fellowship with his son, from our time with Jesus, that God is light. Then he says in verse 6, that if we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness. So my first question is, what does it mean that God is light? Second question is, what does it mean to walk in darkness? Third question is, what does it mean to walk in the light? If we understand these three things, then the whole of chapter 1 will make sense to us. So who can try? Who can help us? What does it mean? You can pick anyone. God is light. And children of light can walk in darkness. But we also have the option of walking in light. What do you think? Sorry, can you come again with the three? God is light is the first. What does it mean that God is light? Because this is not saying that God is like light, right? Saying that God is is light. You know, there are two such statements in First John. The first is God is life, light. The second is God is love. These statements are not attributing light to God. They are saying that God is one with these things. So it's important for us to understand what that means, right? And then he's saying that it's possible to walk in darkness. It's possible for you and I to say that we're having fellowship with him 
<laughs> yet we're walking in darkness. And that um, if, we, if that happens, we're living, our life is a lie. You know, so what does that mean to walk in darkness? Because here, even though some people once upon a time, but thank God that is not trending anymore, try to claim that the book of 1 John chapter 1 was written to Gnostics. But it's very clear in the use of we, 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 that is written to Christians, right? And it is written to warn them against Gnostics and Gnostic teaching, the effects of it. So what does it mean to walk in darkness? And then what does it mean? to walk in the light. Can I try, Joshua? Yeah, yeah, please. And this is just me trying. Mm -hmm. And God is light. I mean, the Bible does describe God as, um, first of all, father of lights, right? And yeah. God is not light, unapproachable. And Jesus, you know, talks about being the light of the world. I'm seeing light as holiness, righteousness, mm. and darkness being the opposite of that okay. and yeah I, I, I don't know mm -hmm. that's the way i've seen it anyway that's a good that's a good attempt very good one light means everything that is opposed to darkness right sammy your hand is up um okay yeah actually sorry my internet cut out i lost it because no worries but but um the the example that's given is actually very very um, on point, uh, but I, I was just I was looking at it this way that light light is that which makes things manifest. So mm -hmm. light is that in which nothing is hidden. Mm. So light is like the light is the embodiment of truth. Mm. So anything obviously that is anti-light is trying to hide the truth or to move mm -hmm. away from the truth. Wow. So in this context, John saying God is light mm. is that God is the the, um, the inarguable reality, the wow. unassailable <laughs> truth. Mm -hmm. So it's like the, it's like. This is the truth that nobody can argue with. This is the truth nobody can deny. Yeah. And that we are children of this truth. So, however, we, despite being children of this truth, can walk in darkness, meaning that our life can be in denial of this reality. We, despite that, it's just like a boy who is an example of a boy who, let's say, Dakota's son. Everybody mm. knows Dakota is rich. Everybody knows. Mm -hmm. But then the <laughs> son can then act as if he's broke. He can try to masquerade himself, either consciously or unconsciously, in his mindset, in his mannerisms. So you now seeing Dankote's son can say, you are a son of a rich man, but you are pretending or you are living in denial or you are living in delusion or you are living in rebellion, whichever one it is, but he is now, his reality or his life is now a stark opposite. He's going against his father's reality. So that's... Wow. Thank you so much, Sami. Thank Sammy, you. I don't know if you made it more easier or more complicated. Don't worry. I, I would explain further. Okay, um, thanks. <laughs> but but Sami, thank you. That was really good. Um, Golda, your hand is up. 
Okay, I want to talk about the walk in darkness part. Okay. I think it's still related to what Sammy was saying. But I'm looking at it from the angle that walking blind. If you're walking in darkness, you can't see. Yeah. So walking in darkness, um, darkness basically is walking blind. Like you don't have access. Yeah. You are dead, but mm-hmm. you are not there. Like yeah. you can't really do anything. So you're walking yeah. blind. Yeah, that's really good. So you see, the reason why people will stumble, right? is because they are walking in darkness. Right? Golda. Yeah. The reason why people will stumble is because they're walking in darkness. Because every time, sometimes when we read walking in darkness, we think walking in darkness means that, oh, my life is miserable, right? Or my life is in sin. Rather, the idea is that the reason why I stumble into sin is because I'm walking in darkness. The reason why my life is miserable or can be miserable is because I'm walking in darkness. So that the antidote to walking in darkness is simply walking in the light. But we're going to come to it. But to, I think Sami explained it quite well, but to put it together, what does it mean that God is light, right? Like Sami said, it means that God is, first of all, it means it means many things, right? Because is light unapproachable. So we're still going to be learning about what it means in eternity. But let's make some attempts. It means that God is the ultimate reference point, right? He's the ultimate truth. If somebody comes and tells you something, you need to compare it with what God says. If if Satan comes and tells you something, you need to compare it with what God says. If you want to evaluate your life as a man or as a woman, (laughs) You need to compare it not to what you think you are doing right, but to God's design for man. What was it? He's light. He's the ultimate. Right? If you want to know between right and wrong, is this thing right or wrong? He's the reference point. If you want to know between, like the difference between true and truth, true and truth, you know, because we said one time, right, like that when we did I think um, the power of gospel meditation or something like this, one of those series back in the day, right? Um, We said that when you begin your Christian life, you are concerned with right versus wrong, right? And (laughs) God is light means that God is also the reference point for right versus wrong. But as you mature, you begin to be concerned with right versus the will of God because many things are right, but not many things are the will of God for you. And we said that even though there are gray areas in Christianity as a whole, you know, people tell you a lot, you know, especially in the West, ah, there are gray areas. So, for example, alcohol is a gray area, you know, because you find enough scriptures that say don't drink alcohol as you will find enough scriptures that suggest that you can drink but don't get drunk. So there are gray areas. But you see, when it comes to your life personally, there's nothing like a gray area. God has a perspective, a will for you personally. So you have to to differentiate between right and the will of God, between true and truth. True means that, yes, this thing is true. Truth means that it's the testimony of God about you. It is what he's saying. Yes, you, you have the right by yourself to drink alcohol, but he's saying to you that don't drink. So you cannot write a thesis statement and say, based on this scripture and that scripture, 
I'm supposed to drink. That's a great effort. But you need to find the ultimate reference point. And you see, that is why if you approach God, if it is true that you approach God, you will instantly see your sin. Because he's the reference for everything. You think that you are that you love people, and then you come to him and you see that you are actually wicked, that your love is, is as self-centered as anything. Now, compared to men, your love may be glorious. But in the light of God, you will discover that your love is inadequate and you will begin to beg him for help. So light serves as the reference point for all reality. But you see, light also reveals. So that's the first stream of light. It's the reference point for everything. Just in case you want to know, am I failing? You know, you can look at statistics and say, okay, I'm failing. But before you look at statistics, look, look at the light. Am I failing? Am I failing? Is the reference point. He is the reference point. That's why the moment our society lost God as the reference point, everything became negotiable. Everything. But before I call you, Stephanie, the next thing light does is that it also reveals. Right? It reveals. Because there might be darkness in you and you're just going about and Satan knows there's darkness in you. And he's just waiting for the perfect opportunity for that darkness to manifest. But then you come into light and you see, Kai, I'm wicked. I don't know if it has happened to you before, but I can tell you in my case that a time came in my life when I told myself, I'm really humble. <laughs> Kai. In fact, it sounds ridiculous to say it now, but yes, I said it. I'm really humble. And because when, like, when I thought about different scenarios, I'm like, huh, look at how I responded in that scenario. I'm humble. God has really worked on me. And then one of those days in fellowship, huh? one of those days in fellowship, the light shined, the light shined. And then I saw pride. I'm speaking in a low voice because, you know, there are many things that you, it's, it's light that reveals darkness. Somebody can come and give you a philosophy and it sounds so plausible. It says, uh -uh, if, if the company is, is laying off people that they, that they just hired you too, that you just signed a contract. You can also cancel it and go for the highest bidder. And after you hear that advice, you now take it to the light. And then as, and the light shines on it and reveals the falsehood in it. So that there is nobody that says that he fellowships with God that will not be transformed by his light. You see what John is saying? That it, doesn't, it doesn't matter what you say. If we say, if we say that we fellowship with him and the evidence of that fellowship is not progressively visible in our space, we're lying. Stephanie, your hand is up. I'm sorry. I'm mm -hmm. so sorry. Well, you see this thing you just explained now, how the light is a reference and then it humbles you, especially when you're in fellowship, you're in the place of prayer. And then you now see your true self in reference, as in when you when compared to that light, right? Mm -hmm. Can the enemy then use this revelation against you the rest of the day? Because sometimes I see myself beating myself up again and again after that revelation has been, you know, yeah. after I've seen that revelation of myself. Mm. And then I just carry on like, oh my God, I'm not worthy. 
um yeah. horrible yeah. uh the whole month or the yeah. whole year yeah so yes. it's like i i don't know yes how... I, I i get your question <laughs> Thank you, Stephanie. Very good questions you're asking. Very good, because it's helping us go into more depth, right? So that's the third thing about light. Light energizes. The, the problem with us is that we don't stay long enough in fellowship to get the full ministry of light. Maybe we arrive at the point where light reveals and we're like, Kai, I'm a terrible person. And then we check our clock. Oh, it's eight o'clock. I need to go to work. And then we stand up and we go. And then Satan now comes to say, can you see? You are a terrible person because light didn't finish his work. Now, I want to leave us with a scripture. I know we don't have time, but I want to read it so that you can go back and also meditate on it. Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is a sister scripture of this, of what John is saying, right? Now, the first six verses of Psalm 19 are a preamble. Imagine that you want to write a psalm. You have only 14 verses and you spend the first six verses just giving us the introduction, the preamble. But that's what's happening here. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament show his handiwork. Day unto day is utter speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. And there's a lot you can get from that, but it's still preamble. There's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Then he now starts telling us where he's going. In them, he has set a tabernacle for the sun which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run his race. It's rising is from one end of heaven and is secured to the other. And there's nothing, nothing hidden from his heat. You know, so this tells us the, the revelatory. So it tells us the heavens declare the glory of God, right? So that's the reference point of light. And then now it's telling us that nothing is hidden from his side. That's the revelatory point. But you see, the sun doesn't just serve as a reference point. It doesn't just serve as the revealer. It also energizes. I don't know if you've walked in a dark room before. You've tried to be mentally productive in a dark room versus a room that is lit with natural light. It affects your physiology, right? The very workings of your body. And then he tells us where he's going, finally, in verse 7. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Okay. I will stop reading because <laughs> we, might, we might change our Bible study topic if we continue reading at this point. The, the anointing on these verses is amazing. That the ex your experience of light is supposed to convert your soul. Yes, supposed to convert your soul. Look at what it says, right? If we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ's son cleanses us from all sin. The reason why God reveals, it's not so that he can beat you up with what he has revealed. It's so that he can humble you and he can purge you. The gospel that told us that a Christian does not need to confess their sin because you know that gospel that you know that's when we say hyper grace this is one of the mainstreams of it a christian does not need to confess sin right you know that first john is one of the biggest dilemmas for the people that hold such a position right because to say that a christian does not need to confess sin it's like saying that after you've eaten food and your metabolic processes have worked on the food <laughs> and you are now bloated 
that you should not go to toilets. You see, what you ate was good and it helped your body. But you see, the process of doing it has produced things that you need to let go. It's not a sin to want to use the toilet. <laughs> it's rather human. Jesus said, I've washed your feet as an example so that you too can wash each other's feet. The only way, the only way that your feet will not be dirty is that you did not leave the house. And you see, like I said at the beginning, God did not design any of us to live on the mountaintop of transfiguration. He, he, he designed us to live in the valley of demons. Yes, they are there, but he made provision for us. So it is normal. That as you interact with the world, your feet get dirty. You think when you're in the presence of God, you think you're the most loving person on earth. And then you now interact with one colleague in the office. And then you realize that your love has not started. So when the light shines, stay until it purges you. Don't be afraid, friends, to repent. And you see, these two quest these two prayers, I'm sorry and help me. There's, there's no version of them that's too much. I'm sorry. I repent and help me. There's no, if it is, because you see, the weakness of man is his corporal form. That's the weakness of man. So you see, when I told you that God revealed pride in my heart, maybe if it was five years ago, I'd have been, I would have beaten myself up for one week and said, hmm, well, maybe that's why my life is like this. Well, you see, when he revealed it, I stayed with him and said, God, touch this pride. Because you see, you don't know how deep it is. You don't know, I assure you. You don't know. You might think, okay, he has shown me now. So, okay, so when this situation comes up again, <laughs> in the future, I'll comport myself. <laughs> you don't know. God is not looking for comportment. No, he's not looking for metaschizamato. He's not looking for a transformation that works itself from outside in because that's the kind of transformation that Satan himself does. He said the devil can transform himself into an angel of light like he did in the Garden of Eden. It's an, it's a, it's an outside in manifestation. It's a superficial. It is based on performance. The transformation that God wants to work in us is metamorphosis. The kind that the butterfly goes through from a caterpillar to a thing that can fly. It, it, it's organic. It's from inside. So if God reveals something, you don't know the depth of it. I can assure you. So the only way to, to deal with it is to return it to the one who revealed it. And say, have mercy. This thing has the capacity. If you have revealed it, it means he has the capacity to hinder me. To, he has the capacity to hinder me. It could be that my problem is not demons, but God himself is resisting me. So have mercy. I know that this thing may even show up in many cases, but I bring it to your feet now. Have mercy. Yes, stay until the light purges you. Yes, you, you, that's when your, your business with the light is complete. Friends, this is how to fellowship with the Father. The Father is light. You cannot have iniquity, have body in your heart and expect to prosper in your fellowship with the Father. You know, you can prosper in earthly metrics, human metrics. In fact, Satan can help you prosper in human metrics. But when it comes to fellowship with the Father, to the thing that is at the heart of your Christianity, you cannot tolerate darkness and prosper in that fellowship. But I want to manifest God. 
So I, I open myself to him and say, who can understand his errors? That's how Psalm 19 ends. Who, who can understand his errors? Deliver me from presumptuous sins. Sins I'm committing and I don't even know I'm sinning. Deliver me. Teach me how to walk away from, from these patterns of destruction. So very quickly, because of time, what it means to walk in darkness, even though I'm a son of light, right? Even though I'm a child of light, even though I have access to light, I can walk in darkness. Now, the first thing I wanted to know that walking is not something you can do unconsciously, right? Walking is deliberate. It's a choice. In fact, walking involves two steps, right? One step forward, one step, one step forward, left, right, left, right. That's walking. And in the book of Ephesians chapter 4, we realize that when you're walking, you are putting on, or is it Ephesians chapter 5, one of those, or both even. You are putting on, for you to walk, you're putting on and you're putting off. You're putting on and you're putting off. And Paul advised us to put off the old man and put on the new man. So if I'm walking in darkness, friends, pay attention to this. If I'm walking in darkness, it means I'm turning off the light. Even though I'm a child of light, even though I have access to light, maybe because I don't like the things that light is saying about me or is revealing about me, the fact that maybe light seems to be keeping me in an obscure place where nobody knows and recognizes me for a season, I begin to turn off the light. I've met Christians who have not read their Bible the whole week. In fact, sorry to say, but there are some Christians that don't even have a, a downloaded version of the Bible. They need internet to read the Bible. Right now, of course, I'm not saying that that is a measure of, of anybody's spirituality. But you see, <laughs> Psalm 19 that we read told us clearly the way God has decided to manifest as light by his word. The word of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. These are Old Testament saints speaking. A believer that turns off the word of God has turned off the light. And what is going to happen is that you are going to walk in darkness. And you see, it's possible for you to walk in darkness and it looks like you're fine until you meet a stumbling block. Some people arrive at the point of breakthrough, at the point of decision, and they realize they can't hear the voice of God. I'm telling you because I've been there. A Christian, probably speaking in tongues even. We are walking in darkness. Another way to turn off the light is to turn off fellowship. You know, Satan convinces you that you can go solo and you can go alone because there's a measure of God's light that shines in fellowship that cannot shine in your room with you alone. God has to bring that ministry through another. God has to bring that ministry through a community so that if I form the habit of neglecting the gathering of ourselves together, I'm turning off the light. I'm turning off the light. So I wanted to see that walking in darkness is a deliberate thing so that you can see that the antidote is also a deliberate thing and it's simple. Turn on the light. Turn on the light. Turn on the light means take responsibility. Don't just believe that life is happening to you. Sit down with the word of God and say, God, is life really happening to me or am I playing a role somehow in the things that are happening to me? You know, or even if I'm not in control of any of these variables, am I responding the right way to the things that are happening to me? You turn on the light. You begin to practice truth. 
Yes, I remember when I started practicing truth. I said, okay, God, I've noticed that when people press me in certain areas, I, I lie. This was me eight, eight or nine years ago. If you press me in certain topics, I just lie. And I didn't have to premeditate it. It just came out. So I began to deliberately practice truth. <laughs> mm. Mm. Before you ask me, how old am I? I tell you, first of all, <laughs> up front, I tell you, hey, I'm X, Y, Z years old. So that <laughs> there's no possibility that your question will come at a point when I'm not expecting. And then I'll look at you and I'll tell you something that I'm not supposed to tell you. I had to practice truth because God showed me that there's no darkness in me. Somebody would offend me and I'll be offended. And I'll be like, God, you know, I'm offended. But right now it's only you and me that knows that <laughs> I'm offended. This person doesn't need to know about this thing. And the light shines. I say, go and tell this person that you're offended. You know that to wash each other's feet is the person who is washing that needs to be humble. You know, right? It's not... <laughs> Both parties need to be humble, but the humility begins with the person who takes the towel, wraps it around their waist, and knows that this is what I'm about to do. I can receive uppercut with the leg. But humbles themselves. Friends, God is calling us into a richness of fellowship. Into a richness of fellowship. God is calling us to that place where we enjoy him again in the purity of devotion. So that his life, the same life that was manifested through Christ, can, can flow freely through us. Can we cry to the Lord and say, show us. Show us the places where our worship has been defiled. Yes. Show us the places where our worship has become contaminated. Contaminated with self. Contaminated with things from the fallen nature. Purify our worship. The Father is looking for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Many people are seeking the Father. But Jesus says that the Father is seeking such. He's seeking such. He says, the heavens are my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you built for me? Is there anything physical? Is there any performance you can do that can satisfy me? He says, but to this man I will look upon. To him who is of a contrite and a broken heart, who trembles at my word. Friends, we need to make it an attitude to tremble at the word of God. If somebody comes with us and the, and the basis of their speech is the word of God, whether we like the person or not, whether we accept the person or not, we, we tremble at the word of God. Because God says that it is to this person that I will make my home. Make us, make us true worshippers, Jesus. Make us true worshippers. Make us true worshippers. Purify us, Jesus. So that we may come into the fullness of fellowship. So that we may come into the reality of the life that you have deposited inside of us. Kaila mosapataila. Shandali bahaitas kovaniatalas. Randos Cavenias, Asola Bahaitos, Kevala Madines Camba, Chevrandes Conde, Hazila Matayla, Sufatala Babadoro Capana.
Bring us into light, Jesus. Bring us into light. Bring us into light, oh God. Let your light become our reference point. Let the, let the words that you have spoken concerning us become our reference point. Let the instructions that you have given us become our reference point. Reveal the darkness that is lurking in our hearts. Reveal the darkness that is lurking in our space, oh God. Shine, 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 shine. For you are known by the light that radiates from you. By the brilliance that radiates from you, from which no darkness can hide or remain, shine upon us. I want to see you, God. Oh, I want to see your face. I want to know your ways. I want to touch your grace. So I can live your days. I want to see you. Oh, hear the cry of our hearts. Just the way you are. Oh, oh hear the cry of our hearts. Oh, hear the cry of our hearts. Oh, hear the cry of our hearts. That just as Jesus lived you out, that we also will leave you out. I am Osafa Diatalas. Jesus. That's the way, the way you are, Lord. We want to see you. In the mighty name of Jesus. Let's finish mm-hmm. our study so that we don't have to do this next week. So can you read for us, Nancy, from verse 8 to verse 10? If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Nancy. So as we close, look at the progression. Verse 5 began by we saying that we have fellowship with him. Verse 6, rather. And walking in darkness. And at that stage, he says that you're just lying. You know, you're just twisting reality, essentially. Because that's what it means to lie. You're just lying. You're just twisting reality. And you're not practicing truth. But you're still a Christian. Right? So you've, you've turned off the light. Right, but yet you have a an external expression of fellowship. You are, you, are, you are not listening to the word of God. You're not submitting to the word of God. You're not participating in fellowship with the people of God. You're not submitted to the leadership that God has placed in his house. But, but you're still, you know, in the motion. At that point, you're a Christian. There's no doubt, but you're just... Your, your life and reality are two different stories. And then in verse 8, it tells us what happens if we continue in that state. We arrive at a place where we are deceived. To be deceived means that I'm not able to recognize sin for what it is anymore. And the reason for that is because I have ignored it for so long, 
right? I have rationalized it. That's what it means when he says, if we say that we have no sin, because how can someone say that he has no sin? The only way he can say he has no sin is that he has rationalized his sins. You know, we have something called white lies, for example. And they always say that Trump told a lot of white lies. And you see, white lies <laughs> sounds fancy, no? But you see, there's nothing like a white lie. Because the idea of a white lie is that, oh, it's a very tiny lie. You know, it's just little. A white lie, it's just clean and neat. It just fits in perfectly. It's not so serious. You cannot go to jail for it. There's nothing like a white lie. A white lie is merely a euphemism for a lie. You know how when we see people being proud, we, we say, ah, this person is proud or arrogant. When we ourselves manifest the same thing, we say, no, we're just, you know, we call it something else. You know, we're just standing up for ourselves. You know, we're just, you know, we're just, you know, keeping an eye out. Very same things that we can clearly identify them for what it is in each, in other people. When it is in us, we, we, we give it a euphemism. We call it something else. That's why the psalmist says, who can understand his errors? Who can understand his errors? And he cried and he says, cleanse me from secret faults. So that's what happens when we begin to rationalize sin. You know, you, know, you, look, you look at something that you're not supposed to look at. You look at it the first time. You look at it the second time. And instead of calling it lost and begging God for mercy, see, I'm just a curious person, you know. <laughs> I'm just curious, you know, I, I have high curiosity. I like, <laughs> brother, you are dealing with lust. It's an old enemy. It has, it, it has been identified. And we need to humble ourselves before God when we realize that our eyes are more in control of us than we are in it. Because if we don't, a time can come when we say we have no sin. And he says that in that state, we are deceived. So it means at this stage, our fellowship with God may be hindered, but we don't even have a clue what happened. That's what happened to Samson. How can a man who was anointed, have you thought about it? How can the anointing come upon you and you don't know? How can a man who was anointed by God not know that God had left him? Because he had normalized iniquity long enough that the day God left him, didn't know. So this is dealing with when we begin to rationalize it. You know, John is the, is the apostle of the beginning, the one who calls us back to the vital things. But you see, even in this state, there is still a solution, right? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You may have heard it said before that the basis of the forgiveness of our sins is two things. is the faithfulness of God and the justice of God. There is no Christian that should feel so much under the weight of condemnation that they cannot come to God because your forgiveness of sins is not lying on the benevolence of God. It's not lying on the emotions of God. So if he feels happy, he forgives it. It lies in on the faithfulness. For God not to be faithful means that he denies himself. He denies his very nature. You know, this is why the judgment day will be intense in many ways because Jesus will have a dialogue. He said, but there was grace. There was grace. If you had just said, I'm sorry, there would have been grace. So how come you do not bring yourself to the point of acknowledging your iniquity? 
because that was what God tried to do with Adam. He, God, when God was asking him, where are you? You know, it's not, it's not as if he didn't know. He was trying to get the guy to admit that something happened. And he still started, my wife gave me to eat all of that. But the good thing with him is that when he finished, he said, and I ate. So he acknowledged that there were many things in this thing that were not in my control. Yes, but I ate. There was a part of it where I exercised my will. So I, I see that I'm, I'm in the wrong. Is the, is the person that admits that that can receive the mercy of God. So when we receive the light of God, whether it is through a sermon or through the word of God or just through the direct ministry of the Holy Spirit, it's not for us to take on our head as a burden. Because Satan would like us to do that. It's for us to appeal to the faithfulness of God. Just in case you are not predisposed to trust the faithfulness of God, the Bible says that it is justice for him to forgive your sin. So he will be unjust if he does not forgive a sinner who comes to him. If we confess our sins. So friends, let us see the confession of sins to the Lord, not to priests, you know, to the Lord as, as a necessary part of healthy fellowship with the Father. Any arrangement of fellowship where this healthy recognition of, of flesh, of sin, of iniquity is not recognized, has missed it. And that's what John is calling us back to. And the final state in verse 10 says that if we say we have not sinned, so this person doesn't just rationalize sin, he denies it. At this point, this person has gone way beyond the boundaries of the grace of God because the Bible says he's making him a liar. And it says his word is not in us. Friends, his word is not in us means that hmm, it means that our salvation is not sure anymore at this point because we're making God a liar. This is what many people who want to be Christians, right? And yet want to hold on to a gender ideology that is not supported by the light of God's word. This is where they are at. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And you see, if you make God a liar, then who can be your advocate? It's better for you to say, God, I'm struggling, but I still, I still agree that what you said is true. So let my experience be the lie and let you be true. And let, let it be you who sorts it out. Yes. For me, that's my posture. When I see things that confound me, right, in my experience, I'm like, God, this thing I'm experiencing does not match up with your promise, but let my experience be a lie. And let God be true. Because he's our advocate. That's how John will pick up in First John chapter 2. He says, I'm writing it to you so that nobody sins. But if anybody sins, we have an advocate with the Father. So if I make my advocate a liar, what is my recourse? And that's where chapter 1 ends of First John. The riches of fellowship. An invitation to come into the light. To walk in the light and to experience the fullness of joy that comes from walking in the light. And it's my prayer that each of us will come into the full richness of this experience with God in our lives. In the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.